If you'll turn with me to uh, Ecclesiastes, please. Ecclesiastes. And rest assured, I'm going to give you some time to get there. But if you find uh, Psalms, you'll be really close. Just keep going to your right. We're in a series of You Will Be Like God, and the text is out of Genesis 3, 4, and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, you know, before we go on to what we're going to discuss this morning, I just want to encourage you and remind you that they were already like God, but the only thing that they knew was good. There was no evil yet in the world. But when they ate of the tree that God forbidden them, that's when evil came in. Okay, so um, this you will be like God was a lie to them because they were already like God except for not knowing evil. Amen? All right, so as we're going through this, uh, we looked last time at how the culture has redefined winning and losing to the point where they want to take losing out of the picture because they don't want anybody to feel bad. And then there's ramifications of that. And because we don't want people to feel like a loser, then everybody who participates gets a trophy. And... So that's how society has um, walked recently. And you get a trophy, not because you're good or skilled, but because you just show up on the team. And, you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't like that. We didn't get trophies for participating. You got trophies for winning. And uh, we had to work hard at winning. We had to sacrifice to be good enough to win. And we want it to win because we wanted the trophy. Just think about it. If everybody gets a trophy, do you have to work hard? Do you have to sacrifice? Do you have to practice hard? No. All you have to do is show up because you're going to get a trophy. And so I didn't understand this, but I'm seeing it play out in our culture nowadays. And the trophy represented that you were the best. And now culture is saying, well, we don't want you to think you're the best. Well, what do you want us to think? We're a loser? Yes. That's what they want us to think. You know, I remember, well, in the late 70s, the Steelers and the Pirates were both winning and so their theme for the city was, we are the champions. You can't play that song anymore. For real. Because everybody has to be a champion whether they win or lose. And it's like, that's not the way it was back then. Amen. But the world has decided that we shouldn't have winners and losers. And... So everybody gets a trophy. We shouldn't strive to be the best that we can be. We shouldn't become skilled because then those who can't and those who won't put forth the effort won't feel good. They'll feel bad. And so that's what we're contending with. 
And, you know, again, when I was growing up, the motivation to be better was because I didn't want to be a loser. I wanted to be a winner. I wanted to be a champion. And because I saw that, you know, and they do this nowadays, and I, I love watching this when you have the Super Bowl or the World Series or basketball. I don't usually watch them until they get to that point now because I want to see how the losing team responds because in some of our coaches, we had to stand out there and watch the winning team celebrate because then he would use that as motivation for us for the next time. And you hear that on these, um, these coaches that are smart. They motivate them by watching them see the winning team celebrate. We have removed the consequences of failure in society. And we're going to see how this has come into the church. So just hang on, but it's going to take us a minute to get there. It's through failure, through the process of failing, that we get a backbone to rise up and become better, to become stronger and faster and smarter and whatever else we're competing in. But if we never, if we never fail, we never know how to improve. Not wanting to be a failure should be what motivates us, and we have taken that away from our society recently. We have robbed our children from learning what it's like to fail, thinking that this is going to make them feel good about themselves, but it really doesn't. We have robbed them of the beauty of failing. And here's what I mean by this. If we remove failure from people, then we remove the opportunity for us to learn through adversity how to become stronger. And the scripture is very clear that it's through adversity that we become stronger. But when we remove failure, we remove the opportunity to learn how to overcome adversity. We learn, it's through failure that we learn how to overcome our weaknesses. So when we take failure and, and we take that away from our society, then we've lost the art of overcoming our weaknesses. Failure lets us know where our struggles are. You know, one of the things that I love that they do in the school system is when they're rev before they enter into a new unit, a new time, you know, because they, they change, they have a test that they have the kids take. And it's for the teacher to understand where the children are at that point so that they know how to teach better to the children. And I think that is so awesome. It's, it's, not a, it's not graded, but it gives the teacher an understanding of where their students are and how they can help them the best. And so they see their struggles, they see their weaknesses, and then they can begin to address them. When I was growing up, I hated to see the other team win. It, it bothered me, and I'm not competitive. Glad y'all realized that.
Now, here's the main consequence that I want us to see from everybody getting the trophy and us taking failure out. We move from a society of we to me. In other words, it's all about me. It's all about my feelings. It's all about how I look good, even though I'm not doing anything to look good. But we want you to feel good, even though you're not doing anything good. And so it's become a me society, and we've lost the we in it. We've become a me culture. And we begin to see that in the church as well. A me society means everyone needs to feel good about themselves. Everyone needs to get the trophy when they compete so they feel good about themselves even though there's no competition. And so then we're teaching our children how to live according to their feelings. Not according to what God says about them. Even this morning, as we heard, not according to the truth of God's word about them. We just want them to try and feel good. And so when we're trying to make them feel good, we're just catering to the me society and not the we society. Life becomes about me and what's best for me. How do I feel about, and then you fill in the blank. That's what these kids are taught now. How do you feel about this, and how could I make you feel better? You know, my parents didn't make me feel better all the time. They weren't concerned of how my feelings were. And, and think about this. It's coming to the point where, even in the church, we don't even care about how God feels about us. And the things that we're doing, we just want to make sure that we're feeling okay about them. And as long as we're feeling okay about them, it doesn't matter what God thinks about them. It doesn't matter what his word says. We can be doing wrong. But if we feel good doing wrong, then it doesn't matter that it's wrong according to God's word. And when we are a me society, we go from looking outward and helping others to taking care of ourselves and not reaching out to others. We become tunnel vision with just us in the tunnel. Just me in the tunnel. There is no longer a we and an us, and it just comes, everything becomes about me, what I like, what I want, what I need to make me happy. We tailor our Christianity and our walk with Christ to be limited to how I can feel good about myself. We have come, we have, we have to become more like Christ to be able to give him away. But our definition, I'm afraid, of us becoming like Christ is we get from God what we want and let everyone else fend for themselves. As long as I feel good about my walk with God, I don't really care about yours. And that's not Christ-like at all. We aren't concerned about our neighbor, our brother. We aren't concerned about others' needs, just ours. We aren't willing to sacrifice, to work hard at the disciplines necessary to become like Christ. 
We have turned inward instead of looking outward. And that's not biblical and that's not God's heart. God works through family. He works through church. He works through small communities. He, that's how He begins to work. That's how He begins to change things and make a difference. Because within a family, there's usually more than one person. And so we find out that two are stronger than one. And three is even better. We've lost the understanding that we need each other to be better. Whether we like it or not, this is how God has decided that it's going to be. When I do funerals, one of my favorite parts of the funeral is right at the beginning because I talk about that person and who they are, the different roles that they functioned in as they were alive. And I do it and I list all the things that they've done. And then I say, because that is how God intended them to live their life. To be able to touch one another. To rub shoulders with one, one another. Rub elbows with one another. We're not an island unto ourselves is what I say. Because God hasn't intended us to be an island unto ourselves. He's intended us to have a small group that impacts us. So that when we go out into the world, we can impact the world. But when we are a me society and everything is about me and how I feel and, and hoping that I'm happy and that I'm feeling good, then we come to the conclusion we don't need others because they're not going to make me happy anyways. They're just a bother and a pain to me. We go to the place where we're not bothered by others. We're not inconvenienced by others because of their need, because they're lacking something. And we get upset that they have a need. And why can't they just do it on their own? Because maybe God wants you to do it. Maybe God wants you to help. I mean, that's what he told Abraham, didn't he? He said, Abraham, I just want you to know I'm going to bless you so much that you're going to be a blessing to others. But we take the blessing and we just hoard it for ourselves. Well, if I did it, they can do it. Well, maybe. But you know what? You had help along the way too. You just don't remember it now. We become inconvenienced when God is even asking more of us, but it doesn't fit into our agenda. It doesn't fit into our plan. In Ecclesiastes, hopefully you got there. Chapter 4. Verse 9. Ecclesiastes 4.9. It says, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. How simple can that be? Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. Matthew 18, 19. Uh, actually, before I go on, I, I want to preference this too. <laughs> Failure in your life does not mean that you sinned. There are things that happen in our life. There are 
things that we fail at in our lives that have nothing to do with sin. Now, there is sin that causes us to be a failure, but not all failure is sin. If you've never done anything, the first time you do it, you're going to fail at it. It's not going to be right. And we'll get into that again in a minute. Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for my Father in heaven. How awesome is that? Two. So if two are there, he's going to do it. Verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there, I, there am I among them. How awesome is that? So he's here this morning. He's here. And there's power in the name of Jesus, but ex exponential power when we come together in the name of Jesus. And I'm not going to do the math for you, but I pray that you write these scriptures down and you go do the math and see the exponential power that is being done here. Leviticus 26.8 says, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That's a good return. Five, a hundred, a hundred, ten thousand. That's a pretty good reward. Deuteronomy 32, 30. How could one have chased a thousand, so one a thousand, and two have put 10,000 to flight. That's some ex exponential power. That's good. One a thousand, two, put 10,000 to flight. God is after our hearts. And our hearts, when they are fully after God's heart, are for others. We're not out for ourselves. When we become individuals and we are selfish in our thinking, then we lose the mark of love that Jesus says marks us as belonging to Him. We have to know that we are not created by mistake, by accident. We are created for Him and by Him. You can run from Him. You can act like God doesn't exist. You can despise Him and disagree with Him, but you cannot run from the truth that you and I are created by Him and for Him. Colossians chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. And this is one of my favorite scriptures. If you understand this scripture and the ones that we're going to read, then you're going to realize that it's not about you. 
And if you're walking in a me society, then you need to change. Because Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He is the image, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, everybody say by Him, all things were created. How many are all things? All things. So by Him, all things were created. That means you and I, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So your life is not just you. It's not just your life. It's your life for Him. Because you were created by Him for Him. Verse 17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the church, or head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. So what's He want out of our lives? He doesn't want a me society. He wants a Christ society. He wants to be preeminent in our lives. And if He's preeminent in our lives, then it's not about us. It's about Him. And it's about those that He loves. In a me society, it's all about you and your love for yourself, and it has nothing to do with Christ or His people. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. I fear that in the church we have lost this truth and we have come to the conclusion that it's all about me and it's about my feelings and how I can be happy. We have to come to the place that not only do we understand that we are created by Him, but we are created for Him. But it goes even deeper than that. You are not just created for Him and by Him, but you are saved by Him and for Him. And we have lost that understanding. We have lost that truth. We are not saved for ourselves so that we can just have a miserable life on here until we die and then we go to heaven. We are saved by Him, for Him, so that heaven can come down to earth while we are here living. But in a me society, you don't care about that. All you care about is me and how me feels. And is me happy? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also 
to your conscience. And let's just pause here for a minute. Paul's trying to help them and they're coming against him. And so he's just trying to reason with them. Verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer the, um, those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. In other words, they were accusing Paul of being crazy, of lost his mind, of being strained. And he says, look, if that's the way I am, it's all right. It's for God. And then he says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And then he says this in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. In the NIV, it says compels us. And that word controls or compels means that you have two walls that are coming in together and they're squeezing you together and there's only one way out. So the, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this. All right, so this is what Paul's saying that we have concluded. That one, Christ, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those... Everybody say, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Isn't that awesome? So you didn't even get saved for yourself. You got saved for him, for his glory, for his happiness, for his peace. As his ambassadors. As his Holy Spirit filled people who are walking on the face of the earth, waiting for somebody to come up and say, I need help. And you look at them and you say, money I don't have, but one thing I have in the name of Jesus, take it. Woo! For those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Oh, isn't this good? And then Paul gets a little bit more personal. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You see, we have to understand that we're created by Him for Him. We're saved by Him for Him. Amen? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So he's speaking to believers, and he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit is in you, and you got him from God. You are saved. Hallelujah. And then he says this, though. And, um, and then he says, you are not your own. Hallelujah. You are not your own. Verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so that means that when you don't feel like acting like Christ, you do it anyways. When you don't feel like being inconvenienced for Christ and for His people, you do it anyways. When you don't feel like loving somebody because they've done you wrong so long, 
You do it anyways. You love them anyways. Because Christ loves them and you're going to glorify God. You're going to glorify Christ. It's not about us. God didn't save you for you. He saved you for Him. He didn't pour His Spirit out into us for us. He did it for Him. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. You see, when we lose the beauty of learning through failing, we take that away, then it's all about me. And then we lose what God wants to do through us. We lose the reality of walking with Him and becoming more and more like Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Listen what he says here in verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And he's told us not to sleep. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's getting all of this in. He's writing to believers. Now he's bringing in salvation. And he says this in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So whether you're awake or whether you're asleep, it's not about you. It's about him. In verse 11, let's not throw this out. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. God doesn't fall off His throne the minute you can't do something.
want to close with Psalm 103. Because I want to remind you that failure doesn't always represent sin in our lives. But in Psalm 103, verse 6, it says this. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. In other words, it's God who's doing it. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. In his verses 13 and 14, that I hope you get, let me read them again. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And so I want to encourage you with this, that failure does not mean sin. It could mean that we're just trying to walk with him. It could mean that we're trying to obey him. Our children didn't obey us the first time, all the time. When they started walking and they tumbled and they fell, we didn't start yelling at them. We were thrilled because they tried. We knew that they were heading in the right direction. But I also want to want you to know this. That if your failure is due to sin, and we do have that too. God is still greater than that. And he's gracious and he's merciful and he will forgive us every time that we ask him to. Even if it's for the same thing. He'll forgive us. Isn't that awesome? What an incredible God. Why does he forgive us? Because he wants to be glorified in us. He made us. He died for us. And he wants to be great in us. If you'll stand with me, please. I want to challenge you this week to go out and do something great. And if you've never done anything great before, just try it. Try it. Because if you're born again, His Spirit is in you, which means that greatness is in you, and there's nobody greater to be in you. And so you can dare to...
be great for God. So try it if you've never tried it before. And if you have tried it before, try it again. If you failed at it, try it again. If you've been successful at it, do it again anyways. Have fun. One of my privileges, and it's only been a week that I've been at the school, but it's been so awesome because uh, I get to greet them for breakfast. And at first I had helpers with me, you know, because they got to make sure I can do this. And and we're stoned as seventh and eighth graders. We're in a groove now. Those kids come in and we're smiling. They're happy. And I'm encouraging them. I'm I'm telling them what a great day they're going to have. I mean, it's amazing what you can do and how you can encourage somebody. Doesn't take much. Doesn't take much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and the love that you have for us. And Father, I thank you for your word that declares that there's greatness in us and there's greatness that you want to see come out of us even when we're squeezed. And so, Father, I pray that you would refine us. Work us over, Father, until the me gets out of us and the we is revealed in us. Father, I pray that we would learn that failure isn't fatal and it's not final with you. But it's an opportunity to grow stronger, to become better, to become more like you. And Father, that's our heart's cry. We want to be more like you. Father, I pray that even from your word this morning that we realize that we are created by you and for you. But we are also saved by you and for you. And may that resonate in our lives over and over, every day, every second of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go out there and be blessed. Be a blessing and be great.